Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I was going to give a quick reminder that Kids Crossing is back on Sunday morning. So if you have a child, first to fifth grade, who wants to go, they're welcome to go with Miss Kim back that way. But it seemed as if they already knew what, what day and what time it was. So that's good. And that's fantastic. So find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, continuing in, this, in these letters from Paul to a church in need of comfort and in need of clarity. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the word of God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, it will, it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of God. Let me start out with a question. What do, the, what, what do Emperor Nero, the Pope, and every president of the last 40 years all have in common. <laughs> there we go, right? Somebody already knew where I was going. That's right. So I know this sounds like, like the punchline to a bad joke, but the answer is that folks have thought that all of those people were who this text was talking about, right? Every president of every party for the last 40 years was, of course, this guy, right? And this chapter has been the subject of speculation for 2,000 years of Christian history, and I'm not here today to tell you exactly how all that's going to work out. I don't think that I somehow have the answer 
that 2,000 years of Christian history has been missing. You can go to multiple scholars who are far smarter than me from all across church history and find lots of answers to the question, who is the man of sin? When's he going to come? Who or what is the restrainer? Will Christians even experience this? And how's it all going to fit together in what the Bible teaches about the end times? Let me cut through the noise and say that the scriptures were not given to us for our speculation. In fact, Paul didn't write this to the Thessalonians for them to speculate. Look back at verse 5. Look at this. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The reason Paul seems vague to us is that he was very clear to the Thessalonians. He told them about this stuff, and it's crazy to think they knew more about it than we do. They knew exactly what he was talking about, and this should cause us to have a posture of humility rather than the temptation many of us have to be overly dogmatic about exactly how all this works out. And remember, Paul wasn't just writing this in order to sort of pique our interests in end times things, but he wrote this letter with a purpose. Remember what we saw last week, Paul was following up to his first letter and that this church was in need of comfort from their persecutions and clarity from confusion. They had received a a forged letter that claimed to be from the Apostle Paul saying that the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world were so near to them that the whole church up and just quit their jobs. Everybody was like, well, Jesus is coming in a week or so because this letter said so. So I'm just going to quit my job, give it up, and get, get ready for him to come. And Paul wrote this letter to give them comfort and to give them clarity and to tell them next, the next chapter to get back to work. <laughs> and so I want to stay laser focused, not on speculation, but on the spirit-inspired truth that the Apostle Paul has written here for us. And here's your main idea. Here's your main idea. The Holy Spirit gives us in this chapter five ways to prepare for the worst. He says, hey, here's how you can prepare for the worst, regardless of when or how it all works out. And here's what he says first. He says, be alert, not alarmed. He says, the first way to prepare for the worst is to be alert and not alarmed. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He ended the last chapter talking about the second coming and the return of Jesus. So that's his focus. And he says, hey, the, we, we, I'm writing to you concerning Jesus' coming. His, the Greek word there is parousia, which means his arrival, his presence, his coming, and our being gathered together to him. And he puts these together to sort of sum up everything he said in the letters about Jesus' return. He tells us that Jesus is going to come to earth bodily. His presence will be here. He will arrive as a king, and he will gather his people to himself. And Paul addresses the primary temptation that people have when we talk about these things. He says, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. 
That's what we're tempted to do. When we think about the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world, we begin to make what was a blessed hope something to be afraid of. Something to, we get more worried about cursed tribulation than the blessed hope. And this chapter isn't here to make us afraid, but he says, rather than having us be shaken in mind or alarmed, he wants us to have hope. Remember that what we saw last week was that the second coming can be so scary to folks, and it often becomes that way because we have misunderstanding due to misinformation. And that was the case here. Look, look back with me at verse 1 and 2. He says, Do not be shaken or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They had this misinformation in the form of a forged letter that was supposedly from Paul and this led them to misunderstand and to be afraid. But rather than be alarmed, the call is to stay alert. Be mindful of false teaching and misinformation and guard against it. Don't let anything, even something that supposedly came from an apostle, shake your faith and cause you to be, to be the level of, of alarm that these people were. He says, be alert, not alarmed. Next, he gets more specific. He says this, be sober, not surprised. Prepare for the worst by being alert and not alarmed and being sober, not surprised. Look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Here we're told that leading up to the second coming of Jesus, things will likely get pretty dark. You know, the classic saying is things will get worse before they get better, right? And that's what he's saying in the big picture. He says there's going to be a rebellion, a sort of apostasy, he says. The revealing of the man of sin or the man of lawlessness who isn't simply going to stand against God but will try to stand in the place of God. It says he's going to set himself up against every so-called God or object of worship. It even says he sets himself in the temple, which could mean a number of things. It could mean the temple that was standing in Paul's day. It could mean a rebuilt version of that temple, because that temple isn't, isn't there. If you go to Jerusalem today, there's a mosque sitting there where that temple uh, used to be, or it could mean the people of God as the church, as the temple. And regardless of where you might land on that, the point is that the unholy comes from the holy. The unholy will take its place in a holy place. And Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament here. Paul isn't just pulling this out of his mind, he's actually directly quoting. Uh, the Old Testament here. He comes right out of the book of Daniel chapter 11 that you can look at later if you're curious. And what Daniel 11 does is predict the reign of this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who you may have read about, who persecuted the Jewish people from about 
175 B.C. to about 167 B.C. And and his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, literally means God manifest. And he went among the Jewish people, and he went inside the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. you got to understand, that would have been a sacrilegious thing to even bring a pig into the temple, Right? And he went to war with the Jews in an event called the Maccabean Revolt. In fact, the Jewish people still commemorate their rescue from this event in a holiday called Hanukkah. When they light those candles, that is to remember uh, one of the worst events to happen in the history of the Jewish people and to remember God's rescue of them. And why, why bring all this up? Because... By channeling Daniel chapter 11, the Holy Spirit wants to tell us that this man of sin is going to be much like Antiochus Epiphanes was, a brutal and blasphemous person. And Paul wants to tell us this to make sure we are sober and not surprised. He told the Thessalonians these things so that they wouldn't be taken aback. And it's so interesting that Paul told the Thessalonians these things within the first few months of their Christian life. He planted that church, was there for a few months, and he says, In that time that I was with you doing a new believers class, I explained this to them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been one of those Thessalonians and to have had all the answers to what Paul was saying here? In their new believers class, he was talking about the Antichrist and the end of the world. (laughs) Paul has a very different way of doing things, doesn't he? And while the details aren't unimportant, they really aren't essential to what Paul's trying to communicate here because he's telling us, he's warning us of this temptation that we have. Friends, there's, there's a temptation for us as Christians to, who believe in the doctrine of sin to then somehow be surprised when sin happens. We believe that the world is corrupted, but then we stand back and act shocked when corruption happens. And the Holy Spirit tells us, be sober. Don't be surprised when things happen. Don't be caught off guard because iniquity is contagious and sin is real and it will poke its ugly head into everything. Be sober. Stay sober-minded. He warns us that bad news can have an intoxicating effect. You know this if you watch the news media even for 30 minutes, much less think about it for 24 hours a day, just running with nothing but bad news. Bad news can distract you and cause you to miss what God wants you to do. You get so caught up in how bad things can get that you're not doing the good in the present that God calls you to do. If we were at the end, if this were the end of the story, we would have much to fear. But the good news is Paul isn't done. Paul continues. He says, be alert, not not alarmed, to be sober, not surprised. Third, he says, be hopeful, not hypothetical. Be hopeful, not hypothetical. Look at verse 6. And you know what is restraining him, this man of sin, Now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Notice first, 
we're told that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Though there is a a man of sin to be revealed, there's already this sort of sense in which the the spirit is is at work here. That's why people could throughout history identify so many people and try to point, well, there he is, there he is. There's the, there's the man of sin. They noticed that the mystery was already at work. John actually wrote something similar in uh, 1 John 2, 18. And it's interesting, in the book of 1 and 2 John, is actually the only place the word antichrist appears, interestingly enough. And look what he says here, 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. Remember, John's writing this in the first century telling us this. So that's kind of interesting. He says it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He says that though there will be some sort of final Antichrist at the end, there's all kinds of things throughout history that stand against God and try to stand in the place of God. John goes on, 1 John chapter 4. Look what he says. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. So he says, yes, there's this final manifestation of all this stuff. But he says, look out. There's many Antichrists in the world today. There's a mystery of lawlessness already at work. Though there's a final man of sin, a culmination of all of Satan's schemes and false teachings, he says, before you're concerned about that, be careful. Satan's schemes are all around you now. And so be mindful and careful. And notice he says that what keeps this man of sin from being revealed in his fullness is something or someone called the restrainer. And let me say There's as many options on who the restrainer is as there are who the man of sin is. But And it gets more interesting because it actually presents him both as a personal pronoun, a he, and as a neuter noun, which means it's a who and a what. However, that all works out. But the hope we can have is that ultimately, behind the restrainer, who or whatever that is, God is the one at work. We can know that it is God who is sovereignly restraining regardless of whatever various means he might use to do it. And instead of going toward the hypothetical or the possible fulfillments of this or that, he says, stand firm in the hope that God is in control, that nothing happens outside of his sovereign hand. In fact, We need to recognize God isn't simply in control of good things. He's even sovereign over bad things. So many people want to think about God being only in control of good things. Let me tell me, if God isn't in control of the bad things of your life, then you have much to despair today as well. Look at what we see in this passage. Look at verse 11, where he talks about the people who are deceived by this man of sin and following his wickedness. Look at this. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe in the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. God does it. 
worthwhile to think about. Some of us will go home and, and run through that through our brain a ton. But here's what he says, is that God remains sovereign over restraining evil and even at times over letting it loose. Though it's tempting to be focused on the hypothetical, we are called to be hopeful because it is God who is in control. And he says next, fourth, that we're to be confident and not consumed. That we're to be confident and not consumed. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Let me say this. Some of us can spend all of our life focused on the man of sin and the Antichrist and miss the hope of Jesus Christ. I love, there are some folks that seem to know the parts of the Bible that talk about speculation rather than the parts of the Bible that are about Jesus. Because he says, the Antichrist is revealed, but he says, Christ will slay him and bring him to nothing. It, it seems like a pretty short reference, just a passing little reference. He's going to be revealed. He'll get a brief mention, but Jesus gets the spotlight in the end. The forces of evil may get their moment, but Jesus gets the final word. And he says, don't be consumed that things may get worse, but be confident Jesus will come again to rule and reign. He says, yes, things will get worse before they get better, but remember, they will get better. Jesus will come again. He will kill evil with the word of his mouth and bring it to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus will set all things right. Be confident. Don't be consumed. And finally, Paul ends and spends most of his time on this fifth point. He says this, be lovers, not just learners. Be lovers, not just learners. He spends the rest of this chapter devoted on how we are to live in the meantime. While the mystery of lawlessness is at work, and there's this man of sin coming, however that works out, whatever that ends up looking like, how are we to live? And he calls us to consider what we love, not just what we learn. He says things are going to get worse, but we need to be lovers of God's truth, not just learners of God's truth. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. He says we must be lovers of God's word, loving the truth rather than finding pleasure in unrighteousness. And particularly, he highlights three rival loves that kind of try to rival our love for God. And here's what he says. He says, first, do not love miracles more than God's word. Do not love miracles more than God's word. Notice here he says, even the lawless one under the activity of Satan can perform miracles. 
Friends, there's whole churches built around coming together and just seeing miraculous stuff happen. Remember, there's all power, false signs and wonders, and it can be married with wicked deception. Friends, evil is powerful, and it can do things that seem miraculous to our eyes and are able to woo us away into wickedness. We cannot rely on miracles or love them more than God's word. Consider even the book of Exodus. You can look this up later, but there were these magicians that came to challenge Moses, right, in the book of Exodus. And they deceived so many by what was ultimately a false miracle. They were able to turn their staves into snakes and woo all of these people to stay with the Egyptians. But only after Moses was able to truly turn his staff into a snake were the magicians chased off and their false signs exposed. Here's here's the lesson. We are not as smart or as clever as we think we are. Many of us think, I could never be deceived. And that means, friends, you're just one step closer to the rock bottom of deception. Be careful of trusting what you see over against what God has said. Be careful in trusting so many of us living by sight rather than living by faith. Satan would want nothing more than for you to trust your eyes more than trusting God's word. We must be careful not to let a love of miracles rival our love for God's word because even dark and evil forces can do miraculous things that can lead us astray. Second, don't love methods more than God's word. Don't love methods more than God's word. This is such a temptation in churches because, friends, we want to take methods and wisdom and build our church on them, and that's good. We can learn from that, but we got to be careful not to simply rely on programs and methods and, and things like that, but ultimately to rely on the Word. Look at what verse 13 says. Here's what causes growth, verse 13 to 15. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Here's the deal. He says... God's word is enough to do God's work among God's people. Look what he says. He says sanctification. That's just a big churchy word for our personal growth in Christ's likeness comes through the spirit and the truth. He says you were called for this to obtain glory through the gospel, through the preaching of the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he says stand firm in the teachings I have brought to you. Ministry methods and programs can shift and change, but the principles remain the same. We need God's word proclaimed to God's people to do God's work. Many of us are tempted to rely on programs to get done what only the Spirit of God can do. Many of us think that because it worked in the past, 
It's got to be that way in the present. And sometimes it's good to try something different and maybe we do it wrong and have to step back and reevaluate and to devote ourselves to continuing to pray for how God's word could best be communicated for our building up and for the salvation of the lost. He says we need to be learners of the truth, but we also need to love it. Friends, you can't stand firm in truths you don't love, especially when life gets hard. And friends, that means the role of the church isn't simply to fill your head up with knowledge, but for it to go and connect from your head down into your heart and to arise out of your affections. We are called to love God with our minds, but he doesn't just say minds, right? Love our Lord your God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to know the truth and love the truth. You can have all the right answers and yet have zero love for God in your heart. Friends, you can know all about someone but not necessarily love them. And so the question this raises is, do we love God Do we love him enough to trust him when he takes away something else we love or to put us into a situation that we don't love? Is he the supreme treasure to which all other treasures pale in comparison? Because if we are lovers of his truth, we will long to know it and to live it out. Friends, there's so many things that try to rival our love for God's word. For some, there's the the draw of miracles that ultimately causes to put the word of God on the lower shelf. For others, it's these pragmatic methods that become more important than eternal principles. But the third temptation is do not love your might more than God's word. We trust in our own strength. And some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. You think you've got it all figured out, You think your life's going pretty well. You've applied principles you might have heard. And and you're doing all the right things. And you don't think God's word has anything more to teach you or to offer you. You think you've made it. You've got it. You've arrived. And in this passage, we're reminded that none of us arrive until we arrive in God's presence. That the Christian life isn't finished until our life is finished. His work in us isn't done until his work in the world is done. Look where the chapter finishes, verse 16. Most of you will probably recognize these. We've read these verses before, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good Work and word. Paul closes every chapter of 2 Thessalonians with a prayer or with a benediction for God's blessings to be with God's people. And he reminds us that it is God who comforts the hearts of believers in turmoil. And it's God who empowers confused believers to get back to work. Friends, the Thessalonians needed this. And friends, we need this. God the Father has loved us and Jesus Christ has loved us and given us an eternal comfort and good hope through grace that we might be prepared for the worst. That we might be comforted in our hearts and established in every good work and word. That we might not be afraid 
and that we would continue in what God calls us to do. Friends, God uses lovers of his word, not just learners of his word. And his word tells us when we gather together as we are now, there's something unique going on. God's people hearing God's word, responding in worship to the God, the word is revealed, and doing what God's word says to do when we come together. This is part of the reason we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. But even the Lord's Supper is ultimately meant to point back to God's word. You know, there was a recent article that I saw on the internet, which is already a scary place to find just about anything, but... It said that Christians today are in danger of idolizing the Bible too much. Let me say this. That typically comes from a person who doesn't like something that they read in the Bible. Because imagine hearing, man, I think you love that love note from your wife more than your wife. Come on. Looking at it, knowing it, wanting to know it, wanting to have this communication from them. Because by loving God's word, we're actually loving the one revealed in the word. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And as we respond this morning, we're going to prepare to sing together. And I'd, and I'd love for the, the band to come up as we prepare to take the body and blood of our Savior. We need to do so with our heads, yes, knowing God's word having learned it, having soaked it in, but also from our hearts. Friends, knowing that whatever comes, no matter what the worst is, with God's word and God's grace, we will stand firm and we can endure. Let's pray together. Father God, we know that life for many of us may get worse before it ever gets better. Lord, we need to recognize that regardless of what comes, there is nothing in our life that doesn't come from your hand for your purposes. And ultimately, Romans 8.28 says, for those that are in Christ, you're working it together for our good. And Lord, we trust that and we recognize that. I pray we would recognize that you have so loved us and given us eternal comfort through grace that we can know you and love you and live as you would have us to live. You've given us all we need to do every good work and speak every good word that might come our way. Lord, make us people who, le who learn your word deeply, who love you with our mind, but also who love us with all of our hearts and souls and strength. Lord, may we respond now out of the word in love for you. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and honored in this time together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
we are reminded in the Lord's Supper that not only has Jesus come, lived a perfect life, died for our sins on the cross, and risen again from the dead, but we also look forward to the day when Jesus will come again, and the Bible says that we will eat together around the throne of our King. This is a, a, a meal, something we celebrate to remember those things, and it's something for those who are lovers of God and of his word. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you would leave that bread and, and cup in the seats as this is a, a meal for God's people to feast together. And we look to God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In good and bad, Jesus is coming. And that is the hope that the scriptures give to us and the hope that the Lord's Supper gives to us as sort of a second sermon, a sermon in picture form for us of all Jesus has done and all he will do. We close our service with a benediction, a blessing from God's word as we go out into the world prepared by the Holy Spirit for the worst that may come, whatever that is. And the word of God sends us out with this, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.